Welcome back, Change Cultivator friends. And as we continue our conversation with Graham Codrington about really focusing more on the future, one of the things that I learned in the last episode is we need to spend more time as leaders of teams thinking about whether we want to disrupt or be a disrupted, be disrupted. But one key part of that is to make sure that you're really thinking about what the future might present to you. Uh, one of the threads was we may executives and team leaders may be spending more time worried about the today uh, than they are the tomorrow. And clearly you can understand the death of that. So Graham, welcome back. Thank you for joining us for a second segment. Uh, it's great to be back on this side. I love this stuff. Uh, so always willing to talk about it. Awesome. And your passion for it is so important. So I'm going to connect it a little bit to some of the, we've had roughly nine themes that we've been dealing with during this season. And there really are some of those key things that seem to be characteristics of great change leaders, right? There are things like, you know, you're, you're embedding change as a mindset, you're enabling change readiness. Um, I know you probably have a little passion around this notion of being a visionary. But before I get mm -hmm. to that, I just want to go back to this notion of you being a futurist. Uh, and having at points in my career dealt with firms and agencies who are all about being brought in to kind of help teams understand the futurists. Uh, the skeptical side of me could say futurists are like weathermen. They can tell us what might happen, but they can wrong a huge amount of the time, yet they still get paid. So I don't sense you're that type of futurist. You're a kind of futurist who really wants to get people to say, this is what might happen, but get me to some place that's actionable. So are you one of those weathermen futurists or how are you a futurist that actually is making impact with your teams? Well, I'm, you know, I'm often asked uh, about this and, and uh, tried, you know, people asking, what are your credentials? How can we know you can do this job? And, and my cheeky answer is to say, look, I've been doing this for 20 years and about 80% of my clients are repeat clients. And uh, so they used me 10 years ago, five years ago. Uh, and what I told them then, well, they're back. And they're asking me <laughs> for the next thing. So it, it, that's the cheeky answer when people say, well, you can't really predict the future. Um, but they are right. Because actually, I'm not trying to predict the future. Because you can't. Uh, what you can do is, is two key things. And this is what I do. The, the one is to help people make sense of what's happening. So instead of trying to predict a, a particular thing, you help them to understand how that thing actually works. So let me give you a practical example, right? Uh, so the price of oil. Uh, I mean, if, if I could predict what the price of oil would be on Christmas Day this year, I promise you, Patrick, you and I would not be speaking to each other uh, because I would own a private continent somewhere um, and I would not allow visitors. Um, uh, you know, you'd, you'd have wealth beyond your means if you could even predict the oil price tomorrow, to be honest. Um, so clearly nobody can do that. Um, but what I can do is I can tell you for certain that the oil price will never get to $200 a barrel, nor will it get to 20. And I'll tell you why. Because as soon as it gets above $120 a barrel, shale gas becomes viable. That's the price at which shale gas can be switched on. And there are hundreds of shale gas uh, operators in America who would love to sell their shale gas, except it costs them more than the oil is worth. So they don't, they leave it in the ground. And that's exactly what the Middle East prefers. So as soon as the price of oil ticks over 120, 
magically from the Middle East, a whole lot more oil gets released into the market to manipulate the price down to below 100 so that the shale gas operators don't even think about switching their minds back on again. Um, and as soon as you know this, um, and as soon as you know what the levers are, as soon as you understand what the forces are that are influencing a particular industry or a particular sector of society, you begin to realize that there's actually a quite limited range of things that could happen. Um, and that sets you on the path, they're not of predicting, but of preparing. And that's the second thing that I then want to help people to do, which is actually, I think, more important. And that's to help them think like a futurist, which is simply to, and, and it picks up a lot of the themes, uh, Patrick, of the work that you guys are doing on change leadership attributes around um, liberating people from a fear of failure uh, in the future, because we understand where our industry might go and we prepare ourselves for the risks that we're facing. We become discerners of trends. We, we, we see where things are going because we understand where they've come from. We challenge the status quo because when we see the future, we are prepared to say, maybe we should be the ones to not just wait for the future to arrive uh, in our offices, but we should actually go into the future with more speed. Um, another way to say that is we should be disruptors instead of being disrupted. Um, and, and I think that leads uh, people who think about the future to be revolutionaries and mavericks and hopefully a breath of fresh air. I hope that's what I am to many of my clients as I speak to them about the future. Awesome. I love that comment. And I want you, you, you mentioned it in our last conversation and I, and I have it on this one too, this notion of a sense-making framework, right? Give our yeah. listeners a little understanding of what, what you mean by that and maybe some details of what that really is. So there are a number of different ways. It isn't a thing. It's a way of thinking. A sense-making framework says, what are the drivers of change? So I'm seeing something happen. Something is happening. And what I need to understand is what's causing that to happen. And then what might cause that thing that is happening to accelerate or slow down its impact. So one of the, the sense-making frameworks that we use at Tomorrow Today is a model that we developed a number of years ago that we call the Tides of Change. Tides being an acronym for five forces that we believe are the most disruptive forces in the world at the moment. Now, if you've done a pest analysis or a pestle analysis or something along those lines, this is very similar. So we're not claiming this is rocket science and nobody's ever thought about this before. But for us, we wanted to focus on what are, where is disruption coming from? And we think it's coming from the following five areas. Technology. You would have been able to guess that. Uh, I'm sure that's an easy one. Then institutional change. This is actually my favorite one to talk about because this has got to do with the systems and structures uh, of, of the world. And maybe the best way for, for our listeners to understand this is if I were to ask you, what are the rules for success and failure in your industry? The rules that you take for granted. Um, 
So Patrick, let me let me bring you in here and 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 see if you can take me down here. Give give me an in, an industry that you're interested in. Let, let's let's quickly do an example. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time with fast moving consumer goods or retail, like so how commerce gets done. So that's a great example to say, Perfect. cool, we'll take yeah. that vertical. So uh, help me out here with with thinking. Give me an example of. Uh, in the last uh, two years with COVID, what might be two or three top top line examples of rules for retail that have changed quite dramatically uh, in, in, in the last few years? Sure. So there's been a bunch of supply disruption, obviously. Getting product on shelves for people to be able to get has been impacted by supply chain, which will largely result in pandemic issues. There have been fundamental changes in how shoppers purchase goods and services based upon you know, shutdowns of economies, and they may be ordering more online, they may be doing more bigger trips and less smaller trips. So there's shopper behavior patterns that are changing, and there's also kind of production supply chain patterns that are, that are changing. Brilliant answer, right? So now, we, now we've got two big pots of things to look at, and now we can dive in and we can say, gee, supply chains, chain issues, would those be impacted by a further, let's say there's another wave of COVID that comes and, and, and China has to lock down. As it happens, literally, as we are recording this, that's what's happening in Shanghai with 25 million people in full right. lockdown. Is that likely to affect global supply chains? <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, now, what we might want to do is investigate whether it affects our firm directly right now. That, that takes it out of a strategic conversation into a tactical conversation. But if we're wanting to push this a little bit into the future, Patrick, we would ask, do we want to rely on a Chinese supplier you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, what else could disrupt our supply chains? What would happen if, if the cost of containers uh, jumps fourfold again, like it's done in the last few months um, for us? So learning from what we've already experienced is, is, a, is a very easiest way to have a look at some shifts in rules. But the big question we have to ask is, are we living through a blip and everything's going to go back to the way things were? Right. Or are we seeing fundamental shifts? It's almost as if we were on, on a motorway in one direction, and now we're busy taking an off-ramp, and we're literally heading off on an interstate in a different direction. And, and institutional change conversations, um, I think, are extremely uh, powerful. And present so much opportunity when so many leaders think of them as the risk that they present. Well, and that's the, again, to go back to that point we were making a, a moment ago, it's both opportunity and threat. It's, it's both risk and vision that's so available. Give us, so give us the DENS real yeah, quick. Yeah, yeah, so thank you. Let, let's keep on track here. Oh, I, perfect. Say, no, no, I'm no, there, excited about the eye. I can get lost there. There, there is no track. I'll get yelled at later <laughs> by producers, but there is no track. So no, but I want to make sure our, our, our listeners get Absolutely. the benefit of the rest. So the D is demographics, which is everything that a census would measure. Where countries have a census every 10 years, and they measure how old are people, uh, how many people are married, how many people are single, how many people are men or women, or in between or other or none. Um, what religions do we have? How many, uh, you know, how many people have migrated and moved? 
Um, and so it's those big sweeping demographic issues. And, and these are the slowest moving of all the trends, but because they move slowly, they're like a massive glacier that just squishes and, and pushes everything in their way. And we are living at a moment of massive demographic shift uh, around the world. One of my favorite to talk about is that uh, about um, half of all the people who have ever turned 80 are still alive. So in the history of the world, the number of people who have turned 80 is, is not a lot. Uh, through most history, most people have died before the age of 50. In fact, technically correct. In, in throughout human history, most people have died before the age of five. And we've only changed childhood death in the last 50 years. Um, mainly thanks to vaccines, by the way, but that's maybe a different conversation for another day. Um, but we are living at a moment in history, unlike any other, in terms of uh, childhood health, uh, falling child morbidity, or to put it more positively, most children live to be adults these days, and that's unusual in human history. And then probably half of all today's children will live to 100. Now, what does that do to the world? And what are the opportunities and threats? And how does that change who you hire, when you hire, when you retire, how much money you need for a time? Again, we could have another hour's conversation here. So that's the D. The E, I'm sure you could guess this one as well. That's the environment and natural resources, everything from our use of natural resources to climate change and extreme weather and everything in between. And then the S is probably the most important, and it's the one that many other models skip, and that is social values. So this is what do people actually want? What do they desire? Not what's possible, uh, not what's available, but what do people really want? Simple example here, Patrick, and let me ask you this question. We know driverless cars are coming. We know that sometime in the future, you're going to be able to get in a car and let it drive you. But do you want that, Patrick? Right. Or do right. you enjoy driving your car? Uh, you know, I do. And it's funny, you know, you see these commercials, uh, particularly in the States, with these hands off the wheel ones that now have control yeah. over the way. And, you know, I'll do that in the car and the commercial in the US has them kind of bound, pounding their hands on their knees and clapping. So it's a it's a this kind of thing. And I will start doing that when I'm driving with my wife and she will promptly tell me, you know, we don't have that feature, correct? And I'm like, I know, because I don't really want it. But this is kind of cool, don't you think? And so no, totally not. I don't exactly. I'm not in that camp that really embraces is that and and i'm reminded by my wife when i try to do that little trick that we actually don't have that feature <laughs> now that's a great example right because what we can do now is we can say let's ask the question about whether driverless cars are coming does the technology exist yes are the institutions going to accept it now here you've got a yes and a no some people will uh, but a lot of people won't and the long distance Truck drivers, long distance lorry drivers, they're not going to want it. Uh, the taxi drivers, they're not going to want it. And they are very powerful industries. They're going to push back uh, against losing their jobs, um, school bus drivers, and so on. Um, demographics, uh, is this going to be valuable for everybody, men, women, old, young? Um, and it is because old people are maybe dangerous, very old people, I mean, are maybe dangerous when they drive, but they'd still like to be mobile. Children are not allowed to drive, 
but their parents might love it if there was a car that could take them somewhere. So we're seeing from a, from a technology perspective, there's a big tick that's coming. Institutional change, there's a tick and a cross. We're going to have people in favor and against. From a demographic perspective, massive ticks. This, uh, this ticks every demographic box. From the environmental perspective, most driverless cars are electric cars. The technology that makes them driverless is also making them better for the environment. Although some would argue we shouldn't have cars at all. So there's a conversation to be had there, but probably a tentative tick. And then there's the final question, do people want it? And the answer is some people do, some people don't. But if you look at that list now, you've got a lot more ticks than crosses. And you then realize that if you are playing in that space, if you are an organization that's impacted by driverless cars, the conversation is not about the technology. That's the easy bit. The conversation is about changing people's attitudes and what work are you doing there? And if you don't have somebody in your business right now focused on changing people's minds, influencing culture, influencing um, government and unions, uh, and so I would speak to companies like Tesla and say, it's all very well to fill your companies with technology experts, but if you only let the guy at the top speak on behalf of your business, and he is not a good person to influence people, he, he's a good person to mess with people's minds and say crazy things, but he's not good at changing culture and influencing culture, well, then maybe you're a few people short on your strategic team. And that would be the example of the type of sense-making conversation we'd, we'd be having. So I love the notion of tides, right? I think that's really tangible for, for any leader to get their heads around, to make sense of the future. You and I talked a little bit in our prep about being a visionary. And I think the tides is a great mm -hmm. framework, but how would you kind of coach people to think about how do you apply tides to be a practical visionary? Because I could listen to some of this and, and you know, if I, if I don't control a whole company's destiny, I could say that's a little out of my realm, but I think you would agree that any leader at any organization could apply this framework to be a little more a visionary about where they want to leave their individual team. Does that make sense? No, that absolutely makes sense um, because that's exactly what this aspect of leadership is about. You, you asked me earlier in our conversation, how much time should somebody spend on this? And, and I think I could probably give a better answer than I did. I said more than you do now, but, but I would suggest that it needs to be about an hour to two a week. And what I have in mind is I have maybe two one-hour meetings during your week. The one is, is an all-hands meeting, because I think that the stuff we're talking about here should include everybody in your team. It's not just for the senior leaders. It's not just for the people who've got the word strategy in their business title. But you need to get everybody involved in thinking about the future. So what you can do is you can use the TIDES model, first of all, to identify interesting forces and trends that might shape your industry. Um, once you've done that, you can then use the TIDES model again to weed out those that are just fads and passing fancies and those that have a real potential to change your, your industry. Then what you do is you ask your team to, to focus in on those. You hand those out. Somebody's going to look at driverless cars. Somebody's going to look at 3D printing. Uh, somebody's going to look at, uh, you know, the Internet of Things. Somebody's going to look at predictive data analytics. And then they come back 
And those one hour long meetings are, are going to be two or three of your team members presenting some of what they think might happen in your industry with, with a kind of no limits. What, why are we doing this? We're not doing this to come up with an answer. We're doing it to expand our vision, to, to be listeners of the future, to be discerners of, of trends, to challenge the rules for success and failure in our industry, to challenge the status quo of our industry, to come up with revolutionary ideas, if you like. Um, and ultimately out of that, to see if there are any innovative ideas that will flow. Now, the second hour in your week, I would then recommend is more with your more senior leadership team. Uh, and, and that then starts to take some of the inputs you get from that sort of visionary session that you might have uh, with your team and begins to say, how does this impact our strategy today? So it's more of a scenarios type meeting where you say, if that begins to happen, what type of capabilities, what, what talent would we need? What infrastructure would we need? What systems would we need to have in place? And, and that's maybe better done with your more senior leadership where you begin to look at a more tactical um, output. Those who know the agile methodology will, will see immediately that I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing from their daily um, scrum or, or, or daily um, uh, different versions of agile have different language for it. But that sort of daily check-in when you say, what should we do next? How do we improve ourselves? What did we learn from yesterday? And, and I think you should be doing that at least once a week with your team about the future such a practical way to boil that down, to use the tides framework, to use this notion of the three things, see what might happen, use, apply that sense-making framework, and then go, so what do we go do? Uh, a very practical application for how this works. Uh, I want to use that as a close down for this segment two, um, because the segment three with Graham, we're going to dig into a lot more practical tips on how you can actually be a better futurist. Before I do that, though, I think there's some congratulations in order, Graham. I may have been informed that on the date that we're uh, uh, recording this, that maybe in the past day or two, you have won a pretty interesting award. Do you want to share what that was? And congrats to you on winning it. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I, I was uh, honored by the Professional Speakers Association of South Africa with their Educators Hall of Fame uh, award. Um, uh, that gets added to uh, previous uh, awards, uh, which was a Speakers Hall of Fame and a Professional Speakers Award of Excellence. Uh, in the past. So I've kind of got the full set now um, of the sort of halls of fame that, that speakers and educators uh, can get awarded. And yeah, it's like anybody knows, if, if you are uh, given an award by your own colleagues, by, by, the, by your peers in your own industry, they know what you've gone through uh, to develop what you, you've done. So yeah, it was a very special moment. Thank you very much. Well, congrats to you. And I wanted, I wanted to take the moment to congratulate you, but I also wanted to reinforce to our listeners, uh, we will have our show notes where you are getting some free tips from a very, very world-renowned speaker on this topic who recently has been awarded yet another award in recognition of his efforts to be a speaker on the topic as well as an educator on a topic. So we're bringing all that to you at Change Cultivator. So Grant, thank you for sharing so freely all those pieces and parts. I'd ask everybody to come back and join us for our last and final segment where we're really going to dig into tips and tricks on the next episode. Thank you all. Come back. We will see you all soon. Whoa.